Hi, everybody. This show is a project of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art. We've launched a new series of podcasts examining the relevance of the classical tradition today, and this is the next episode of our debut miniseries, Cities We Live In. We're excited to bring new topics to new audiences and want your feedback. Write to podcasts at classicist.org with your comments. This show is sponsored by Historical Concepts. You can find them online at historicalconcepts.com or on Instagram at historicalconcepts. Welcome to Cities We Live In. I'm Kellen Krauss, an architect who grew up in the suburbs and is now living the city life. Each time I return home, I think about what lessons can be applied from a traditional walkable city to car-oriented developments. On this show, I'll travel from city to city with two fellow architects and urbanists. Hi, my name is Rodrigo Boyat Montenegro. And I am Anthony Katanyak. We'll meet up with friends who can tell us all about what it's like to live in their city. In this episode, we visit New Orleans, Louisiana. Sometimes people perhaps oversimplify the French Quarter and just consider it a French colony when you really have to understand this passing of hands from the French to the Spanish back to the French before it became an American city. That's Jacques LeVay, an architect with Stan Dixon in Atlanta who grew up in southeast Louisiana. His family's been just outside of New Orleans since the 1720s. Originally, the street grids and the square at the center of the French Quarter were laid out by the French. It quickly became a Spanish colony. A lot of it burned down twice. And so at this point, the Spanish enacted their own building codes, which is what it really influenced the urban quality of the whole French Quarter itself. The way things are built up to the streets, wall to wall, the scale, the materials, uh, using a lot more masonry. But then New Orleans itself really started booming after it became an American city. So a lot of what you see now is American architecture. So it's American detailing, you know, Greek revival built to property lines and building codes that were originally enacted during the Spanish colonial period on blocks and squares that were fully developed during the French colonial period. It would be a good idea to start off with the development of colonial New Orleans. There's a lot of passing hands and cultural influences that really had a major impact on the urban design and the architecture of the city. So it's just these layers upon layers that to me is a lot of fun when you can start digging into it and figuring out what affected what and what influenced what. So how did New Orleans come to be from the outset? In the middle of the 1600s, La Salle was exploring around the Great Lakes region and made a journey down the Mississippi River and discovered that it drained into the Gulf of Mexico. La Salle claims all of the lands drained by the river for France. He recognized the importance of establishing a settlement or fortification at the river's base. In 1684, La Salle returned back to Louisiana, hopes of establishing a colony there. His exact words were an opportunity to harass the Spaniards from the region from which they derived their wealth. I thought it was always kind of funny. But he missed it. 
couldn't find the mouth of the river, and he was eventually murdered by his crew, who was, I'm sure, very annoyed and not happy. Just before 1700, Iberville, who was also sent by France, did rediscover the base of the river, but he had some difficulties. A couple of years later, they discovered another route to the Mississippi River, which was through Lake Pontchartrain and a bayou called Bayou St. John. They didn't have to travel up the downstream river. Also around this time, the King of France dies, the Duke of Orleans becomes the Regent of France. And finally, a man named John Law received the 25-year charter to colonize Louisiana, focusing on tobacco. John Law greatly exaggerated the conditions and the value of the land in Louisiana and made it sound like a paradise. This plan eventually collapsed. Everything fell through but it established enough of a population for the colony to continue developing. So his plan was to make New Orleans so attractive to bring in everybody and make it seem like he's doing a good job for his government. Yeah, I believe this was one of the first property busts. It seems like it's a profession as old as time. It sounds a lot like the agent that was trying to to get me to rent an apartment in New York that I didn't like. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 1718 is when they first actually started clearing the land in this location. And the very first thing that they did that had a huge impact on today's city is they established the baseline that everything else would be um, set off of. And instead of setting this with the cardinal directions, north, south, east, west, it was rotated 37 degrees southwest to northeast. And this was because the location on the river was at a bend and it faced the city down the river. So if somebody was coming up river, you would be facing them directly. So, read, so that's a strategic move. That was a strategic move. In battle. It was very much a fortification military decision to rotate the city grid initially. Now, in 1722, there was a major hurricane that hit the city. That was the big opportunity for the military engineers to really establish a gridded network. So a street grid was developed around a central square placed on the river, in the Blasta Arms, as it was known at that time. This is really when the block sizes were determined, the street sizes and property was starting to be subdivided. So the block sizes then were set to 300 French feet. 1762 is when New Orleans passed from France to Spain. But it was the same people, so it maintained most of its French culture. So we have this now Spanish colony. You have the the French gridded system that was laid upon it, but still not an urban component architecturally. In 1788, there was a large fire. 80% of the city burned down rebuilt six years later happened again this time the spanish government finally decided to impose a series of building codes this is when the city really really changed in its form and became an urban city the spanish declared that the houses were built directly on the streets to be built against each other more durable construction roofs had to be fireproof they also declared that they should be flat That eventually changed. That wasn't the best idea in 
South Louisiana with all the rain, the more durable construction lasts. New housing types. So we had the French colony transferred to Spain. Spain started becoming economically and militarily a little weaker. America started setting its eyes on New Orleans. Now we're getting close to the Louisiana Purchase, just after the turn of the century. At this time, it was a population of about 8,000 in New Orleans when it became an American city. About half of that was white. There's about 2,700 slaves, about 1,300 free people of color. Some may have thought that at this time, Louisiana would start losing some of this European and French identity. But with everything that was happening in Saint-Domingue, New Orleans received 10,000 Haitian refugees. I think it was pretty much evenly split between free people of color, enslaved people, white, with, of course, a very mixed background, a lot of European and African influences. So that really cut that European culture in the city. I'm amazed that all those Haitians came over, basically doubling so New Orleans. more than doubled. So the New Orleans I mean, population was about 8,000 and 10,000 came. Um, how quickly did that happen and how were they able to accommodate everybody? Fairly instantly, and they weren't. There was a period of time where a number of them were held on boats. They weren't allowed to get off, but the final decision was made to, to let them off. And it was shanty towns for a good long time. You read about these makeshift areas for the Indian people to live. But it helped urbanize it very quickly. Lots of this population, more of a Creole population, you know, stayed around the French Quarter, developed in the areas downriver from the French Quarter. When you're looking at the city, the French Quarter down urbanistically feels very similar and architecturally as well. The house types are very similar, house sizes, lot sizes, the character is very similar. During this period of Americanization, New Orleans it really prospered. In early 1840s, uh, New Orleans, it was the third largest city in America. It was the nation's most productive port. It was the richest city per capita. So it wasn't the largest, but per capita it was the richest. So it had a great deal of money with these early American classical architectural styles coming into play, especially the Greek Revival. A lot of the new construction was built in these styles. New Orleans is very much a Greek Revival city because of this. And this was the type of um, architecture that at this time uh, was really in vogue, and that's where this is when the money really came in. Um, so that's what you see a lot of these grander houses and even the, the plantations outside of the city being built in the Greek Revival style. I remember one of my favorite quotes regarding how you can read a city by its buildings. You can tell when cities got rich. And some cities got rich at the right time in history and some others didn't. So with that in mind, when you visit New Orleans, obviously you see the fruits of all of this money just pouring in and at the right time in history and building these beautiful buildings. What happened to New Orleans afterwards? Did New Orleans continue being prosperous throughout the 20th century? So they got all these bad 60s and 70s buildings was there a time where it stopped and not much was being built? 
New Orleans after the Civil War was not as booming as it was prior with Reconstruction and all. However, that doesn't mean that architecturally it didn't keep developing. A lot of the boulevards and avenues really developed during this time. St. Charles Avenue continued to develop. You get a lot of great, great architecture, but it's much more eclectic. Italianate was big in the city as well. You get a lot of Italianate shotguns coming into play. Parks, like Ottoman Park was developed as an Olmsted Park. The city park for New Orleans was developed, which is quite large, but the size of this is something fun to look at as well. The size of New Orleans City Park compared to the size of the urban area is it's quite drastic. I'm actually rather curious about cemeteries, mostly because one of the impressions that I got when I was in New Orleans is that you walk along the streets and then, oh, there's a cemetery right there. <laughs> They're very much integrated into the grid of the city. It really, really is. <laughs> Could you elaborate a little bit on the urban placement, the integration with the neighborhoods, and finally some neat architectural insights on the, on the mausoleums? Yeah, they are integrated into the fabric of the city. The oldest in the city, St. Louis number one, which is right behind the French Quarter. It's not the oldest cemetery, it's the oldest existing one that you can, can visit. It was set um, at the back, wasn't initially part of you know the urban landscape, but eventually it became parts of it. But you have other ones throughout the city that just take up a block. And it's very much like this cemetery parking within a city. There's a lot of places that you will read that these above-ground tombs and mausoleums are there because of the water table in New Orleans. It's really a European tradition that was brought in. You find those all across Europe. You find these really amazing tombs that could be Greek revival, Egyptian revival, different styles throughout the city. And it's also was part of the culture as well. Even today, like All Saints Day, people gather on the, around the cemeteries and they're cleaning the tombs. It's not a place where you go necessarily just in silence. It's a place that you go and it's part of the culture to be with your ancestors. There are even some places that have music and whatnot in the cemeteries. Some people think that might be going a little too far, but I rather enjoy it, so, you know, taking a walk and just admiring the tombs. You mentioned the riverfront along the French Quarter in Jackson Square. When I looked towards the river, I immediately expected to see the river. Instead, I had to look up. There was a platform and then the river. What's going on there? The connection today to the river is not ideal by any means. Through its history, it was a very active port. So if you look at historic images, there are a lot of warehouses in those areas with ships docked along. It was a very active area. And over time, it changed and the warehouses have been converted. Early on in the last century, the platform that you're talking about, even that was, was blocked off. Um, so that, that was opened up. So that helped some, but you still have to really go up on the platform to really get that full experience of the river, which is unfortunate. But of course, the river goes up and down. So you do need a barrier there to prevent the river from just flowing in. 
On that note about warehouses, though, I do love other little market buildings along the river. Oh, yeah. The French markets. It's a great building. I believe that's the longest running open air market in the country. Could you point me to your favorite civic building in New Orleans and then your favorite residential building in New Orleans? Yes. So my favorite civic building is a small one relatively to most civic buildings. It's the Arsenal on St. Peter's. So if you're looking at the St. Louis Cathedral, if you're facing the cathedral, it's around the corner to the left. Sure, it's a, a white oh, colonnade nice. blaster building. That is done by James Dakin, who was a very talented Greek revival architect that worked with A.J. Davis in New York, eventually made his way down to New Orleans. It's a very strong building, um, but I think it's a great example of something that can be done at that scale within the urban fabric and still make a huge impact. The details on it are very simple. They're very bulky, which I like. I think it's a fantastic building. It has connections. Another one he did in Louisville, the Bank of Louisville, is very similar in its the way that it is embedded into the urban fabric. The one in Louisville is much more of an inantis situation where these are more the Greek revival anti-capitals. It's a, a textbook example of the simplification of the Doric order. The details are very simple. They're very large. It's a great, great building. And you can trace it back through the development of Greek revival in America from things that are happening in New York and other parts of the country. My favorite house in the city it actually belongs to a friend of mine. It's called Maison Vitry. It has a really fantastic history. It was built by a free woman of color in Greek revival American style. So there's a lot of things going on there that I think are very New Orleans. One, it was a woman who owned the property and built the house. It was a free woman of color who actually eventually sued her husband for property rights and won in the 1850s, which I think is fantastic. And it's done in an American style. There you have this Creole woman building in this more modern American Greek revival side hall townhouse. It looks very compact. It's a large scale. It definitely makes a good use of the space. Now, my favorite house, period, in New Orleans in the area is outside New Orleans. It's called Home Place Keller. It is a colonial-style large house. It really typifies a lot of great architectural features of early Louisiana homes. At first glance, it looks like a fairly simple house. The closer you get in, the details of it really come out. All of the beams, every single one underneath the porch is finished with a, a nice little bead on it. The staircase underneath the porch, the way that the handrail curves up just effortlessly, it, it's a really well-designed house. The very slender double emphasis columns on the second floor are really well, beautiful. Well, wood colonnettes. It's a larger scale version, but that's what the houses in Colonial New Orleans would have looked like. There's a house 
in the French Quarter known as Madame John's Legacy. It's a Spanish colonial house, but it is supposedly an exact rebuild of a French colonial house after the fires. So it's really the only house in the French Quarter that demonstrates what a French colonial French Quarter house looked like. On Domain, between Charters and Royal, 632 Domain. There's thin wooden columns, the gallery across, raised above the ground. Some of the earlier ones would not be set at the street like that. It would be set more within the property. Architecturally, one of the big features for more colonial Creole houses is there's, there's no hallways. So rooms flow into room, flow into room. Uh, the buildings themselves were around for a couple of hundred years. They have layers. So you have perhaps a Spanish colonial building that got a little bit more classical additions during the Greek Revival period. And then later in the 1880s, some different style of architecture with the brackets came along. So the brackets were added to the front of it, or the Victorian cast iron galleries were added on top of that. So what a lot of people see when walking on the sidewalk, you have these fantastic galleries that are really in your face and covering you. That's the first thing you notice, but if you remove those and remove a bunch of different layers, you can see the city's history in its architecture itself. You know, a lot of people assume the French Quarter is French for obvious reasons. It's in the name, and the original grid layout, the block sizes, street sizes, were laid out by the French. Its urban qualities really has to do with the Spanish colonial period Architecturally, the French Quarter is very American. It gets disguised, but you find these American Greek Revival townhouses. If you look at the Bentabo apartments, if you strip away the cast iron gallery, you can start seeing things that look very much like Boston. Same thing for single houses as well. You take off the, the balconies and some of the, the more decorative elements, and it's, it's an American classical side hall townhouse, which is great. I think that's one of the fun things of the city as, as well as revealing these different layers of it to figure out what's behind. And you know, you, you'll see um, a cast iron Italianate gallery on a Spanish colonial house. Or you'll see these more kind of brackets that were done in the 1880s on a shotgun that was originally uh, Greek Revival, or even earlier, a Creole townhouse that eventually got Greek Revival influences, and then later on the Italian A came in and they updated it again. Once you start picking those things out, you can see the, the development of the city, both urbanistically and architecturally. The city's foundation is made up of diverse cultural, urban, and architectural layers. French, Spanish, Haitian, American influences, to name a few, are all layers that give New Orleans its unique heritage. They reveal its rich history, emerge to form its identity, and especially enable us to learn from them in order to participate in the public realm. New Orleans is an amalgam of what makes our country so special with people of all backgrounds coming together. It's a city we live in, vibrant and full of life. Cities We Live In is a production of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art 
a national nonprofit promoting the practice, understanding, and appreciation of classical design. To become a member and learn about additional programming, visit classassist.org. This episode was edited and produced by me, Kellen Kraus, Rodrigo Bujat Montenegro, and Justin Kegley, with assistance from Molly Woolforth. Many thanks to our sponsor, Historical Concepts. Find them online at historicalconcepts.com or on Instagram at historicalconcepts.com.